I'm Dan Savage, and I host the Savage Love Cast, which is a weekly kind of podcast edition of my sex advice column, Savage Love. And I've been doing the column for about 23 years and doing the podcast now for six. And I used to think of the column as the most important thing and the podcast as this uh, sort of side gig and riffing on the column. And now it's the other way around. The podcast is really much more important than the, than the column. Why did that Why happen? Why did that happen? Poor old column. <laughs> well, I still love the column and I still write the column. Um, and it still runs in a bunch of papers. It's just uh, on the podcast, you can be so much more sort of expansive. The relationship is so much more intimate. People can hear my tone of voice and my inflection. Jokes aren't misunderstood as often on the podcast as they are in print. Um, and you can really go on at, at great length. You know, the column is 1,200 words. And I sometimes spend 5,000 words on the podcast answering a single question as opposed to trying to answer two or three every week in the column. It's very intimate, it's very intimate. as well because you're speaking straight into somebody's ear. Yes, which is a fun thing and a privilege to know that I'm a part of so many people's commutes and people are sitting on subways and sitting on buses listening to me. Well, who knows? Um, well, who knows what they're listening to you? <laughs> but that, that's a, one of the funny things talking about sex. It's not that erotic. Like hearing about it, talking about it, <laughs> it, it ain't porn. And we talk about problems. Unless someone's got, you know, a problem fetish, they're not going to really get uh, get off listening to the podcast. There are fetishes for everything, though. You name it, problems. and someone somewhere is masturbating about it. But I don't think <laughs> maybe my podcast is the exception. After all of these years of writing about people's personal problems and now doing the podcast about them as well, do you not ever just think, "Ah, oh, deal with it yourself"? <laughs> <laughs> oh, all the time. The worst is when you get a letter from someone who says. You know, I'm 35 and I've been reading you for 20 years and I love your column and uh, you've been such an important part of my sexual development. And here's the problem that I have. And you just think, how could you read me for 20 years and then make that mistake? How could you not know not to do whatever or, or to stay in that relationship or to not have used a condom with a random hookup? Sometimes those are the questions that just make me feel like this has all been for naught. When someone writes in or calls in and says, been listening forever and... I stepped on a rake. And you're like, how could, you <laughs> how could you step on a rake if you've been listening to me forever? You know, metaphorically speaking, the rake. Yeah, they weren't actually mounting a rake. Well, they could have been. It could have been, yeah. That's not excluded. Exclude I suppose, though, as long as there are permutations of uh, human desire and human mistakes in expressing that desire, then you'll have a job to do. I will. You know, there's one thing that's really different now about doing this gig, because I did it. I've been doing it for so long. One of the things that's really weird is when I first started writing it, um, it was pre-internet, pre-Google, uh, and so half the questions were, you know, wh how do I perform this particular sex act? Um, I'm a swing. I'd like to get involved in swinging. My, my partner and I would, but we don't know where the swinging organization is in my community or the BDSM group. And half the columns were just, you know, how to's and where do you goes. And I don't have to do those anymore. I don't ever get to do those anymore because anybody who can get online to write me or send me a question can Google it first and they'll find out, you know, butt plugs and how to use them has a wiki page. You don't need me to explain them anymore. <laughs> So you've been um, so all of, no, it's awful. All of my questions now are very sort of uh, complicated situational ethics where there's no, it's not black or white. Uh, it's difficult to tease out you know, who's in the right and who's in the wrong. And you're being asked to be Solomon every day in these disputes and cut babies in half. That's what I tell people I do for a living. I cut the babies in half all day long. <laughs> Although uh, some people would probably think that's a more respectable profession than podcasting. Um, <laughs> Cutting babies in half. <laughs> yeah. How much of uh, your professional time or your professional income is formed by the podcast? Uh, it eats up a lot of time um, because uh, Nancy Hartunian, who produces the podcast um, and whose idea it was to force me to start doing this, I'm a Luddite, 
um, and not an early adopter of new technologies at all. Uh, she spends a lot of time editing the show. Um, we have to line up guests, get people on. So it's really complicated. It does, to do one show, you know, one hour and a half long podcast every week, probably takes two days out of my week, um, which is twice as many days as it takes me to bang out a column. Um, and how much of my income? Probably half these days, now that there's a paid model for the podcast and we accept advertising. Yeah, I heard you uh, yeah, advertising heard- on one episode for there being three ads on a podcast. Do your listeners complain about the idea of you making a living from this work that you're doing? My listeners complain about everything. They don't know how lucky they are. <laughs> but, but you, you know, the complainers complain about everything. Um, you know, when I explain to people that there's a couple people who work here at the podcast and they deserve to make a living, uh, they usually come around. You know, the same people who wouldn't bat an eye at an, an ad uh, in the middle of a television program that they were watching or, you know, sponsorships on national public radio here breaking in and breaking up the news. Um, it's just that initially podcasts didn't have advertising. So it was an adjustment to get used to tuning it out the same way you tune it out everywhere else. And you've also and got you've the also micro got... and magnum editions of the podcast now. Um, explain what the distinction is there. Well, when when we decided to go to a paid model, we didn't want to say, you know, to hell with you, all you listeners who've been listening to the podcast um, all along and supported it and helped it grow, and now you have to pay for it. Uh, so we kept offering the same podcast at the same length with the same amount of ads for free as we always had. But we, we'd heard from listeners is a lot of them wanted a longer podcast with more questions and more guests and no ads. So we made that podcast happen. So every week we do one show. We record one program. It's an hour and a half long. 50, 45, 50 minutes of it are the, is the micro edition, which is what the podcast used to be. It used to be under an hour. And you get that for free like you've always done if you want to keep listening for free. Or if you want more of me running my mouth, if you just – aren't getting enough of me running my mouth, you can subscribe to the Magnum edition, which has more calls, more guests, and no ads. So, we, so you know, we didn't want to betray our long-term listeners, and we didn't want to force people who are getting what they wanted out of the podcast and just enough to start buying it, but we wanted to make this other model, you know, the longer one available to people who did want more and were willing to pay for it. Do you, Do you save some of the some... particularly fruity and obscene problems for the paid edition? <laughs> we try not to game the system like that. Although sometimes we do like mention to the micro listeners that there is, you know, something juicy in the Magnum this week. And they, they have the option of buying, uh, buying one show at a time if they wish. And it's so educational as well. I had no idea what a unicorn was until uh, you enlightened me. Now you know. It's important. You could be a unicorn when you grow up. That's a, that's a, it's an honourable state, unicorn. Dumb. Dare to dream. How Maybe. have the listeners coped with uh, this change to Micro Magnum? Is it a money spinner? Uh, it, it's been lucrative. Like We're able to pay the folks who work on the podcast now. Um, and uh, I'm Irish Catholic and from poor people, and so it's just weird to I have a hard time talking about money at all, ever. Because there never was any, and so you didn't spend a lot of time talking about it, so you have no skill set uh, you know, that's been passed down from generation to generation about how to have this conversation. But yeah, it makes money. It, it makes good money. And it's, it's very gratifying. It's very affirming um, you know, to do what you do and get paid for it, uh, and, and in such a democratic way. It's not like some you know, broadcaster or newspaper thinks that this might appeal to their readers or listeners, so they put you on and pay you. These are readers and listeners who are like, this is what I want, and I'm going to pay you directly to do it. So it's like upturning the old broadcast models. A bit. It's filtered. You know, everybody gets to hang out their shingle, and and things rise or fall on their merits, and there's less of a a filter and and fewer intermediaries. 
And, but, you know, I run a newspaper still, and my column appears in newspapers still. Uh, I follow certain people on Twitter because they are good at picking for me the things I might find interesting. So I don't want to piss all over the old model of, you know, somebody curating your media world for you because there's so much out there that we still do need curators. And in a way, I'm, I, am, I have been curated in already. I'm sort of grandfathered in the, the curation because I was appearing in newspapers and on television, which is curated in both cases by editors and uh, producers. And then the podcast was something where people who found me through those other mediums came to get more of me. So it's not like the podcast was this independent thing, from, you know, asteroid from outer space that slammed into my listenership. My listenership came along from my television appearances and my column. And how and has the how podcast ha- changed in the years that you've been doing it? Well, when we first started doing it, we just read the letters in the column and I read my answers. It was really stupid. Um, it didn't occur to us to get a phone number for a few shows. Uh, and then we did and we started taking calls and they began to trickle in and we began calling people back. And then I thought, well, maybe we should have guests every once in a while. Um, and it just grew organically. And now we have some regular segments like what you got, because there's all this great research that's done by scientists and sexologists that doesn't get a lot of play in the media or when it does, it's misrepresented or distorted. And to have those people on to, to speak at length about their research to an audience that's interested in sex and sexuality, uh, it's, it's, really grown. It's become the monster, the beast. It's much more uh, thorough uh, and um, multidimensional than my column ever could be. Where do you see uh, where do you see- in the next few years? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. You know, disruption is the name of the game with all this new technology. Uh, it used to be I wrote a weekly column and then I had the rest of the week off to myself and then people started inventing blogging and Twitter and then podcasting. And I want you know, the tech entrepreneurs to just knock it off. Uh, I have enough to do. I feel like they're going to invent a program that's going to make it possible for me to lean out of people's computers and give them hand jobs. And I don't want to do that. <laughs> I want some of my life back. So I don't know where this is going, but where it's at right now is where I would like it to stay. So to the, okay. tech, to the tech people, I say, stop innovating. Give us 30 years of this little sort of uh, tech nirvana and some stasis and a plateau before we jump again. You could have had a pretty comfortable existence just being a franker than average agony uncle, but instead you made your life harder by becoming a campaigner for LGBT, civil rights and marriage equality and gender issues. And of course, your It Gets Better campaign. Well, I was I was um, a gay rights activist before I started writing my column. Uh, you know, I was a, a gay rights activist on my campus and I was an ACT UP and Queer Nation in the late 80s, early 90s. And I've always sort of viewed my column as an extension of that. Uh, You know, I could write stuff for gay publications. I could go to a gay demo and reach very few straight people. And I realized shortly after I started writing the column that I had built this giant straight readership. People who would not read a gay newspaper, would not read an article about gay rights, would not, you know, think or pause if they saw a gay demonstration on the street. They were reading my column because it was about them most of the time. And every once in a while, I could shift gears and talk about HIV, talk about LGBT youth, talk about gender issues, talk about anything, marriage rights uh, for same-sex couples. And these straight people who were in the habit of reading me because it was always about them would read that too because it was in a place that was usually about them. And I had this access and this ability to reach and motivate and change the minds of these straight people in a way that when I was just doing sort of street activism and different kinds of writing I didn't have. So I have a sort of secret homosexual agenda with my column, which is keep it about the straight people and every once in a while uh, lecture the straight people about our issues and uh, bring them along. And it's really been effective. 
I've noticed as well and- that uh, your callers in the show are usually American. Do you ever get Brits calling up or is our nation just too shy to recount <laughs> our sexual problems so candidly and in a public forum? Or alternatively, are our problems just too depraved even for you to deal with? They're not too depraved. Um, I <laughs> lived in London for a couple of years and I'm familiar with uh, British depravity and I, I'm a fan. <laughs> I do I rarely, very occasionally, we'll get a, get a Brit caller or a call from Australia. Uh, lots of calls from Canada, but you can't tell the difference uh, between those and the calls from the United States. <laughs> Um, Britain has such a really great and thriving and healthy agony ant industry that I really feel like uh, Brits who need an agony ant uh, or, or want to lean on somebody for advice have plenty of homegrown options and they don't have to go scare up an American faggot in Seattle on this podcast. Have any of the listeners shocked even you? Shocked me? Oh, out every day. Really? I'm constantly shocked by the stupidity. Um, <laughs> And I say that without being too judgy, because when you're in it, it's easy to be blinded by love or desire or wishful thinking, or I, as I call it, dickful thinking. It's just easy to, 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 to not see what's right in front of you. And that's why you go to a disinterested third party for some advice. But I'm constantly shocked by people's stupidity. And rarely am I shocked by people's, uh, and constantly shocked by my own stupidity, but rarely am I shocked by people's activities. Because I just figure if it exists, someone somewhere is effing it. Do you get asked for sex advice wherever you go? Unfortunately, I do get asked for sex advice wherever I go. And I'm very, oh. and I'm very shy. Uh, and people, you know, I don't come across that way in the column or on the podcast. Um, but, you know, I can speak in front of, you know, a couple thousand people in a lecture hall and I'm fine. Or an or a, uh, opera hall I just spoke at. Uh, and I'm fine, and I'm totally casual and at ease. But like one on one, some person coming up to me on the street, which happens, I'm really awkward. Um, and if people read you and they hear you, it's mostly about sex. Um, here, here's the thing, and I don't want to, you know, make fun of my fans or people who follow me, but people who know who you are, who follow you, appreciate your work, who are cool, they see you out to dinner with your family, and they leave you alone. They go, oh, there's that guy. I love his stuff. I listen to his show. He's with his kid and his husband and some other friends. I'm going to leave them. I'm going to leave him alone. But he's awesome. Somebody who isn't cool sees you and marches up to you. So there's this selection bias at work that the people who tend to approach you are not the people you would want to approach you because the people who are cool that you might want to approach you don't approach you because they're cool. And that gives you a distorted view as well of what your listeners are like. It, it makes you very twitchy. When people come up to you, because you're like, all right, you've already indicated in some large way that you might be nuts because you're <laughs> coming up to me when I'm this is this actually happened. I'm in line with my son when he was seven, getting sandwiches in an airport to take on the plane. And this guy just marches up to me and starts asking me a sex question. And I look at him and go, this is my seven year old. And this is not, time in a place. Yeah, yeah. This is not the time. Send me an email. I don't want to hear about rimming in the airport at 8 a.m. I really don't. And I haven't explained that to my kid yet, but thank you for reading. <laughs> Podcast fans are, I think, unusually devoted as well. Uh, I suppose because you're living in their heads. Yeah, it's the time. It, it's an intimacy. You, know, you look at radio programs like This American Life here and how many fans Ira Glass, the host, has. Uh, people have been listening to his show for 20 years and he's just a part of their life and, uh, and integrated into their life in a way that you can't be integrated into someone's life if you're on television. Because you can move and do things and garden and do whatever you want as you listen. And so there's almost kind of a physical 
sense memory uh, aspect to it, how you're incorporated into people's physical movements in life and, and living and doing as opposed to just sitting and watching. How old uh, will your son have to be before you allow, allow him to listen to it? <laughs> My son has no interest um, in what his father does for a living. Uh, I mean, you can imagine. My dad was a Catholic deacon and a Chicago cop. Bit of a contrast. Bit of a... Yeah, it was. And that was a, that was a burden for us because we had to be perfect because we were not just preacher's kids, but uh, cop's kids too. So we had to be good. Um, and in a way, DJ has the same sort of pressure. You know, your dad is a sex advice columnist. So he has to be the most informed kid in the room about sex or sexuality issues. And he doesn't want to play that role. Just as I didn't want to be perfect when I was 15. He doesn't want to be you know, the sex kid at 15, and he isn't. Fair enough. Fair enough. None of us want to be the sex kid, I don't think. Yeah, none of us do. But, but you know, the, the answer, dude, for his peer group, he doesn't want to be that guy. So he doesn't, uh, doesn't read, doesn't listen, doesn't seem particularly interested, knows I've written a book about our family or two books about our family, has no desire to read them. Because I, you know, there's one of them that's about his adoption. And he got to an age, he thought, I might want to read that. And I looked at him and went, there are, chapters in that book about your father and I having sex. And you went, well, guess I'm never going to read that then. 